0: Amen. So uh, I'm Joe Collins. Welcome to See Church. And if you have been with us for a while now, you know that for the past few weeks we've been doing this sort of mini-series about the church, specifically what we at See Me Church uh, believe. And today, what we've learned so far is that we believe the Bible is the best source of truth in our world today. Thank you, Sherry, for reinforcing that. Secondly, in it, we learn that Jesus is Lord. He lived a sinless or accredited life, died on the cross, and rose to life again And last week we we learned that it was in that belief that we baptize repentant people and then we ended in mid-sentence there. So today I'm going to continue talking about what we believe at Simi Church and I want to finish that sentence with this phrase, in Jesus' name for the forgiveness of sin and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now I don't know about you but I enjoy movies from time to time, you enjoy movies I assume. And one thing that I have as a pet peeve with movies is movies that don't end well. It really frustrates me. I get into a movie, and you're all excited because it's, it's such a good movie, and then the ending is such a dud. I hope my cliffhanger here doesn't turn out to be that for you today, but I think of movies like It. It. Who's seen It, right? Now, I don't know about the new one because I so didn't like the first one. I didn't go see the second one. But it ends, I read the book too, by the way, and the book was a dud. It ends with an alien spider living in the sewer that's mind-controlling kids. Terrible ending. There was another movie years ago, and I'm dating myself. I think most of the young ones are out. But there was a movie called The Abyss. And I got all into that movie. It was really cool. And then it ended with an alien spaceship buried on the bottom of the ocean. Really? An alien spaceship on the bottom of the ocean. It was was just disappointing. Now, on the other hand, there's movies, or or actually one more to, to relate to you guys Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull. What a terrible, terrible ending to that whole series of movies. But on the other hand, there's movies that really end well. And I love them because it's like the author or the writer, he didn't give up, or he or she, they didn't quit. They finished the movie. I think of The Usual Suspects. Imagine that movie ending in the police station with Verbal Kent, and you never see him walking out and becoming Kaiser Sose. <laughs> or imagine The Sixth Sense ending, and you never realize, like, like uh, uh, Malcolm Crow was his name, Bruce Willis, uh, watching his wife sleep, you know, falling asleep during watching old, old videos of their, of their wedding and realizing that he had died. And then the whole movie suddenly makes sense now as to what was going on because he was dead the whole time and you didn't know it. That's great movie writing. Did I, did I just spoil? I mean, I, that can't be a spoiler alert. This is like a 20-year-old movie. Get with the times, people. <laughs> the Statue of Limitations passed on that. See, a good ending resolves the storyline. It it brings the whole movie together. So these three things that Peter says after calling people to repent and baptize, these three things, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, they they resolve the message that Peter was preaching that afternoon on the day of Pentecost. They bring it to closure, but even, even more uh, uh, even better than that, because God is always the best writer of movies, right? If this was a movie, it just not only does it kind of resolve that moment, but then it opens up a whole new series of, of storylines and plot lines that have to get developed and resolved later. I find it so fascinating when you read the Bible in that sense, like it's a story, and how many times God brings something to a conclusion only to leave you going into another story with a whole other set of things and 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 characters and plot lines that have to get resolved and then and then they keep going like that it's it's really a fascinating work the bible so today we're going to take those three statements and we're going to We're going to see how they sort of resolved what Peter was saying in Acts 2 on that day. But also, what I really want to do is talk about where they took us from there. I want you to think of these next three statements that Peter made, not as as landing strips, but as launching pads. They, They were to propel the church going forward. And some of what they meant wasn't clearly understood on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Even by the people who were baptized that day, who responded to the message, it took some time, even after, for them to fully flesh out these next three statements. Let's turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 37. I'm going to ask for God's blessing to be with us before I, I read. Father... Thank you for this time. Thank you for such a great worship. The prayer, the singing, the testimony really did move me into a better place to connect with you. I pray now that the message will continue that, that that worship, and and it'll, it'll go into our hearts so that we can take it from here and carry it out for the rest of the week and pass it on to those around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Acts 2:37 When the people heard this they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the other apostles brothers what shall we do Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you, for your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned warned them and pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So if you know, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, Acts 2 describes some events that occurred in the late spring of, of A.D. 3033 on a Jewish holiday called Shavuot, or we call Pentecost. There was this thunderous noise There was this that emanated from, from a, a gathering of some of Jesus' followers. There was, their hair seemed to be on fire, although it wasn't being burned, and then they spontaneously broke out in, in foreign languages. They were able to speak miraculously foreign languages. In the midst of these wonders that were going on on this day, Peter stands up and he begins to address the crowd that had gathered, literally a crowd of thousands had gathered, wondering what it was going on. And he begins to tell them that Jesus of Nazareth was both Lord and Christ, and that he was killed partly because many of them in the crowd, in fact all of them, had turned their backs on him. It was only a few weeks prior that Many of those crowd uh, people in the crowd were in Jerusalem uh, seven weeks prior, celebrating Passover, and they were there to cheer Jesus as he entered in to the city on, on on Palm Sunday, and then they turned their backs on him four days later and jeered at him as he was led through the streets and to his crucifixion. Now Peter is convincing them that Jesus didn't actually die seven weeks ago, he actually rose from the dead. He was dead and now he's alive. He came back to life and he was actually everything they had hoped he would be, that they thought he might be, that they had given up hope on. And now, no, he was really the guy. Surprise, he was it. And so for many who were there and had a connection to Jesus. Maybe they had heard him speak or even talked with him or wa- wa- witnessed him perform a miracle, whatever it was, but they had some sort of familiar connection to him. They began to put tune to uh, with what Peter was saying, and they began to believe. Not to mention others in the crowd who had seen Jesus resurrected, who were saying, no, it's true, he's actually back to life. He was dead and he's alive again. And all of a sudden those feelings came flooding back in. Maybe he was the one. And oh my gosh, we turned our backs on him. And they began to feel bad. And they began to feel sorrowful. And they asked Peter, what shall we do? And in reply, Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you. We learned that the word repentance is the Greek word metanoia. And it talks about a mind change that leads, leads to life change. Baptism, or the immersion in water, was something that the high priest did every year to atone for the people's sin, and it was something that the crowd would have been very familiar with and, made, and, sent the, and, 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 and was connected to the concept of forgiveness. Both of these responses, repent and be baptized were thoroughly established practices in the Jewish faith to begin with. It was nothing new for someone to say something like that. For those of you that are uh, readers of the Bible or familiar with the story, John the Baptist baptized for forgiveness. I mean, it wasn't an uncommon practice. But what was unusual, what was different, and that's where we ended last week, was the statement Peter said next, the three Statements he made next. And that's where I want to go today. And we're going to start with the very first one, in the name of Jesus. Now, I'm going to ask you to remind, to to do me a favor and realize that we are looking back 2,000 years later. So this is an old movie to us. So I'm going to ask that you kind of forget that and just get in the moment with me as we go through the story because it'll help you follow how these concepts developed and why they were so unique and transformative even though they're very familiar to us. So as Peter was preaching about Jesus in Acts 2, he called him the Christ, the accredited, anointed, descendant of King David, but he also called him Lord or referred to him as God. Now this concept of a God-man, like I said, is familiar to us. We, we've had it for 2,000-some-odd years. It was actually not unfamiliar to the Jewish people in, in Jesus' day or in Peter's day, but it was a very un- misunderstood concept. They didn't actually ever see the God-man until that moment, so this was a new revelation to them. One of my favorite books, if you've ever read it, is Dracula. And I've shared about it before, um, and Dracula is a, is a commentary. It was written by a, a believing person, a Christian, who was upset about the, the, uh, the overemphasis or the overtrust in modernity. In other words, he, he lived at a time which we still live in, uh, the modern era, where it was all about facts and numbers and science and everything could be tested and proven and anything to know would, would only be known through our senses and what have you and the scientific method. And, and he felt like, no, there is actually the supernatural and people are forgetting that. And so he wrote the story of Dracula because Dracula is this, this unusual creature from the past. He's a being that no one can understand because he fits nothing in, in, he, he he defies all categories of modernity. So if you ever read the book, and I would encourage you to do it because it's, it's a pretty gripping read, but when you read it, you find yourself getting frustrated at all the characters because they keep sitting around going, man, I wonder who the bad guy is. And Dracula's sitting in the room with them. <laughs> but because they can't comprehend of the supernatural, they can't ever identify him as the bad guy. In the same way, I think the people in Acts 2 if we could transport ourselves back in time we too would have a little bit of difficulty processing this idea that Jesus is Lord and Christ he's God and man it's even i think hard to some degree for us today even though we've lived with it for such a long time but the fact is he was that he is that he is Lord and Christ he is God man And as that message spread, and more and more people began to accept that message, so the need to understand it or to to give some sort of validity to it grew. And so many of his followers began to write letters or biographies of the life of Jesus. They began to record the events because they wanted to be able to leave for posterity the evidence that Jesus was who he said he was. Lord and Christ, the God-man. And one of the best records and evidences we have of this truth is found in one of his closest disciples, one of the closest people to him, a guy by the name of John. He wrote a biography of the life of Jesus. And so I want to turn there because I want to flesh out this understanding of Jesus as the God-man. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. We skip down to verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. As I said, John was one of the earliest followers of Jesus. He knew him intimately. And several decades after Acts 2, he decided to record a biography of the life of Jesus. So it may sound weird, but Acts 2 happened first, and then the book of John was written. And what you see happening in that transition is John is trying to help put meat on the bone for the early Christians who accepted the name of Jesus, who were baptized, repentant and baptized in the name of Jesus. He was now fleshing out what that meant, The name of Jesus. So there was a bit of a lag time between what they understood when they were baptized and then the theology or the teaching that came after it. And in John's book, he makes it very clear that he believed Jesus to be God who became flesh. Or the God-man. He was both God and man. And to substantiate these claims, he recalls, or or, or leaves for posterity, seven miracles that he witnessed Jesus perform. And these miracles were done publicly for many, many people to see. So they were were irrefutable. And some of them were done more privately, but they were done in close close proximity to so many people that there was no denying that they had actually occurred. The first one, changing water into wine. The second, healing a royal official's son who happened to be in Capernaum while Jesus was in Cana, some 16 miles away. The healing of a paralytic, the feeding of the 5,000 with just a few loaves of bread and fishes, walking on water, healing of a man born blind, and the rising of Lazarus from the dead, not to mention that Jesus rose from the dead as well himself. Each of these miracles, in John's mind, and in the mind of many of the readers, because, as I said, these were not done in secret, and many people could verify the veracity of these claims, these miracles proved that Jesus had the authority to command, to alter, to command, to animate, to create, to reorder, to recreate, or reanimate matter, proving that he is God. Finally, at the end of his biography, John then explains why he wrote the book in the first place. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name or in his authority." Because he is God. He is the God-man, the Lord and the Christ. That's why John wrote his gospel. to, To leave behind a record of the truths of this unique life that was unexplainable, that could not be categorized by science or anything else. It just is. This is the same name that Peter said repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ or by the authority of Jesus Christ. Here's my point repentance, metanoia, the changing of your mind that leads to a change of behavior, baptism, the immersion in water, they mean nothing. if they're not done in the authority of jesus christ maybe saying mean nothing is harsh they have a place maybe it's a starting over it's a fresh start it's like okay i'm going to start my diet this year but that's the level but when they're in the name of jesus christ they mean something totally different But you know, the name of Jesus Christ means nothing if you don't believe he is the God-man, the Lord in Christ. You could just say in the name of Bob. Why not in anybody else's name? Because they're not the God-man. They didn't raise people from the dead. They didn't walk on water. They didn't heal people who couldn't be healed. It's only in the name of Jesus that repentance and baptism find their meaning. You know, what's mind-blowing to me is I'm not sure how much of this the people in Acts 2, if we could go back in time, really got all that. I think they got, because they they lived it, they were present there when it happened, I think they had some understanding, a, a real sense of it, because maybe they had witnessed it, but... It kind of was it. That was kind of all they had. It wasn't until guys like John and others wrote their Gospels to fill in the backstory. Did they really begin to understand what these things mean? So I'm going to share a story about myself here. Some of you may not know this, but I have been baptized three times. And that makes me three times more awesome (laughs) than someone baptized. No, Jacob, it doesn't. Okay. (laughs) I have been baptized three times in my life. And no, it does not make me more awesome. But it does illustrate that unless you're baptized, repentant, baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, that really anything else doesn't matter. The first baptism, I was an infant. I had no foggy idea what was going on. I have no memory of it. As a matter of fact, it was done really for the benefit of others. My second baptism, I was 13. Now, I had a belief and a desire there. There was a willingness. I wanted to do it. But the fact of the matter is, there was no metanoia, there was no mind change that led to behavior change, and to be quite honest, I don't know that I had the maturity to really grasp the idea of Jesus' authority, of the God-man. The third time, I was in my early 20s, a young adult, and I can tell you right now, I didn't know everything by any means, I still don't. I was maybe a lot like the people on Acts 2, I had a basic idea, but I did believe In Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Lord and the Christ. I believed in that. And because I believed in that, I repented. My mind changed. And there was, without a doubt, life change that followed. And so when I was baptized, I was baptized in the authority of Jesus Christ. I repented and was baptized in his name, in his authority. My mom likes to say, well, the third time was a charm. <laughs> if, you've not been, if you've not repented and been baptized in Jesus' name, what are you waiting for? I'm not talking to infants here, I'm not talking to immature young adolescents, I'm talking to grown-ups. What are you waiting for? You don't have to know everything. You don't have to have all of your ducks in a row. You just need to repent, believe Jesus is Lord, and be baptized in his name. It's good enough. That's where it starts. And the rest of the story, it's going to get filled in. Trust me. But that's good enough. There are several here who have been here for a while, and we love that you're here. But I really want to encourage you to think about this. This is a big deal. Don't put this on the shelf. Make this decision. You're so close. The second thing Peter said, after calling the people to repent and be baptized in Jesus' name is something uh, something that should be received rather than achieved. It's, It's the forgiveness of your sins. It's not something you earn. You don't work for it. You don't get it because of your good looks or your effort. It's just given to you. It's a result of repentance and baptism in the name of Jesus. It's something that he does for you. Now, I've already said... That belief in Jesus' name, that he's both Lord and Christ and God, man, that's the active ingredient here when it comes to repenting and being baptized. But forgiveness is the result. Now, who here doesn't want a little forgiveness? I think we could all use some of that, don't you? I want to talk about something John said. Same John, different book, written about the same time as the first book. First John, John Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, he will have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the world. John here is addressing no one in particular. But in a funny way, he's addressing a particular person. That's someone who's trying to understand forgiveness. How do I receive it? How do I experience it? How do I know real forgiveness? I think it's a question a lot of people have. It's a question I had. I think it's something we all desire. It feels good to be forgiven when you have a conflict in a relationship and then you forgive each other and you feel good. Well, what about when it comes to God? We all have conflicts there. There's shortcomings, there's failings and and man, you know how do we get that forgiveness? Is it really as easy as believing Jesus is Lord? Repenting and being baptized? Is that really it? Let's go back in time 2000 years. We're Jews and we're in that world of judaism we've got we've grown up going to jerusalem three times a year celebrating the different festivals and one of the festivals the one in fall septemberish time is called i pronounced it wrong last time it's called sakat i think i called it suck it last time but it's Sukkot. <laughs> i don't even know if that's exactly how you pronounce it but better than suck it But Sakat began with Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur was the day of atonement. That was the beginning, basically, of Sukkot. five days later, but it was all kind of the same holiday. And on that day, the high priest would offer sacrifices. He would immerse himself in water, and he would atone for the sins of the people. But it wasn't all the sins. It was the sins of the previous year. So you grow up, and every year you go to Jerusalem to celebrate Sakat and Yom Kippur and Sakat, and the goal of that is to have all your past sins forgiven. But it didn't pay it forward. And so this becomes what you know about forgiveness. You have to, you get it in in, in increments, in stages, at periods. You have to you have to be there and you have to go through the whole thing and but it's not permanent. It's not forever. What happens if you die in between the years? My, my, my sins weren't, I mean those are all, I'm sure, questions people wrestled with. How do I get genuine forgiveness? Well, then John, years later, he writes this letter, and he says, I write this to you that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. who is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the entire, sins of the entire world. What he says there is that because Jesus is who he is, The Lord Christ, the God-man, or the Righteous One. That's just a riff on the same idea. It's in capitals. Righteous One. He, and only He, can forgive you of your sins, past, present, and future. He can pay it forward. Now, that's an awesome concept. We don't have to keep going to the temple every year and just kind of hoping that these sins can be forgiven this time and oh my gosh, I did it again and I got to go back and oh my gosh and oh my gosh and have this certain level, this, this level of insecurity built into us which I don't know about you but I have all the time still because Jesus is the righteous one. Way better than Ferris Bueller. He was only the righteous dude. Jesus is the righteous one. And so he can pay it forward. His sacrifice is better than all the others, it blows all the others away. In fact, it's once for all for anyone who has repented and baptized in Jesus' name, they have received forgiveness, past, present, and future. You don't have to keep going back, it's done. Still, it's hard. Even now, we fast forward to our time. It's even hard to feel that forgiveness, isn't it? Because we've done some pretty rotten things, even as Christians. Myself included. I've been thinking about doing a series, and I really mean this. I don't know when, but I want to do a series called "How Joe Sinned" this week. <laughs> because I just, I just want to cope with this reality that somehow I'm a sinner yet I'm forgiven. I don't know about you, but I park my car coming home and I have my little button to roll my window up and I push that button multiple times when I park my car, all of them, all four of them, make sure all the windows are up. Now I do that and I thought about this recently. Why do I do that? I do that because I don't totally trust that the windows are up because I grew up, Dane, and you didn't grow up this way, but I grew up like this. I grew up rolling windows up (laughs) and when you roll a window up, it stops and you know it's done. Right? I know Mayan and I joke about our old cars, and he didn't have windows. So, you know, there you go. <laughs> Most of his were broken. But, but that's, you know, you, you roll and you know it's done. You got that satisfaction. I think the Day of Atonement was a little bit like that. It was done. I'm kind of satisfied, and now on to the next time when it's done again. But, but now I got to trust that this auto button is going to roll that window all the way up. And I can't do it. I keep pushing the button make sure it's up. We don't have to do that because Jesus is the righteous one. And his atonement forgives us of our sins, past, present, and future. It pays it forward. So yeah, baptizing repentant people in the name of Jesus Christ is enough to forgive them of their sin. End of story. It's enough. You don't need to go get a degree in Christianity now. It's enough. You don't need to go and prostrate yourself every time somewhere and feel bad about everything you've ever done. It's enough. The mind change is there. Baptism is there, and it's done in the name or the authority of Jesus Christ, the righteous one. It is enough. It ought to be enough for you. It ought to be enough for me. But, you know, I don't think it was just people in the first century who needed to be convinced of this. I think people today need to be convinced of that. I think some of us in here need to be convinced of that. And I think that's where you and I need to come in to help each other. Because Jesus is our advocate in heaven, but we're our advocate here. We help each other. We advocate for one another here on this earth. And so sometimes I think we need to remind each other that our sins have been forgiven. We don't hold them against each other. We don't have lingering disagreements and bitternesses. We let them go because we forgive each other, because Jesus has forgiven us, and he's advocating for us, and so now I'm going to advocate for you, and I'm not going to hold it against you. I got to do that. How about the people on your list we talk all the time about making a list of your neighbor the people that god has put in your path your oikos your world the people that you do life with on a regular basis we talk about them all the time are you advocating for them are you extending the grace and forgiveness of jesus christ that was extended to you to them you know the best place to start The most important place to start, the one place to start, and it's the only place I'm going to ask you to start right now, is by praying for them. Pray that they know forgiveness. That they know what it is to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and to receive forgiveness. Pray for them. Every day. Second thing Peter said or third thing, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So this is a lot like the second one. It's not something you go and get or you earn. It's something that's done to you or given to you. Now, of all these concepts that we're kind of wrestling with, that were laid out there in Acts 2, they were just kind of put out there, but not necessarily fleshed out until later, this might have been one of the more difficult ones. It's difficult for me today. The Holy Spirit is bizarre. It's a hard thing to kind of understand. And I can't imagine for them that it was any easier. Think about their context. The Holy Spirit to them was what they called the Shekinah of God. It was the physical manifestation of God's presence in the temple. So if you can believe this, and this happened, I wasn't there, but I believe God's word. I know that modernity says, no, 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 there's no scientific, da, da, da. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is like Dracula. Okay, This is something that we don't always get. It comes from somewhere else. It's supernatural. But when the, when the temple was built and it was consecrated, thank you, Glenn, for that, when it was consecrated, God's Spirit rested on it and a giant pillar of fire and smoke hovered in the Holy of Holies and out the roof of the temple. The Shekinah of God, the physical manifestation. So, so think back then, the Day of Atonement was a pretty big deal because God was right there. Some people believe, some of the rabbis used to teach, that when you, when you would offer your sacrifices on the altar for your sins, the smoke would go up and get sucked into the, to the cloud that was hovering over the temple. It was, it was God accepting, for your, you know, granting forgiveness, accepting your sacrifice. Well, that had ceased to exist, back to our story of Jeremiah, when the temple got destroyed by the Babylonians. Well, that, the Shekinah was gone, it didn't exist anymore. So where was God now? Like, where was his presence? Because it was usually located in a place, Well, the only other place they would think of was a person. So God's presence resided in a person. Not all people, only special people. Prophets, kings, people like that, priests. That's why there was a priesthood. Not everybody got to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It was something that happened. It came upon you. And you know what? Sometimes it left you. Like it left the temple. Sometimes it left people. Famously, King Saul, if you know the story. So that's how they kind of understood the Holy Spirit. It was kind of isolated the time and space and place or person and place. And here, Peter's saying, no, no, no. The gift of the Holy, the Holy Spirit is a gift that is to be received by people who have repented and been baptized in the name of Jesus. That's how you receive the Holy Spirit. And it's received, it's internal. It's not external. It doesn't just come on you and then leave later. It comes and becomes a part of you. It takes up residence inside you now that is a very crazy concept i'm not sure how much they got it at the time peter goes on to say in verse 39 sherry mentioned this the promise is for you your children for all who are far off for all whom the lord our god will call peter seems to be saying that hey those of you that have repented and been baptized in Jesus name not only have you received forgiveness of sins but you now also get the gift of the Holy Spirit the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and it's for anybody it's not just for special people it's for everyone I'm going to go back to John's biography because John actually talks about the Holy Spirit in there, and I really believe he put it in there to help Christians later sort of sort out, how does this all work? What is, how does the, what's the end of the story here with the Holy Spirit? So John chapter four, 14, verse uh, 15 through 17, he says, if you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and I will give you another advocate to help you be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it because it neither sees nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives in you, with you and will be in you. So here's Jesus even before Acts chapter 2 kind of laying the groundwork to the apostles trying to explain how this all works. but again, this is going to sound weird, but this book was written many years later, so it wasn't actually really public knowledge until many years later and then other Christians could kind of help put the pieces together. It was an evolving revelation. But the point is is that John says that the Holy Spirit is like an advocate to you. So Jesus is in heaven advocating for you, for your forgiveness, but the Holy Spirit is actually inside of you, advocating to you. And not only is it inside you, but it's with you forever. It's not going to leave. It's permanent. Later in that same conversation, he says... But the advocate, this is Jesus speaking, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. So here we go again. The advocate, the Holy Spirit, it's in you. And what does it do? It reminds you of what Jesus said. And sometimes gives you new information as you need it. One more thing. Same conversation. A little later. When the advocate comes, Jesus talking again, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth goes out to the Father. He will testify about me. And then I love this line. And you must also testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. So the Holy Spirit also not only reminds us of what Jesus said and taught, maybe even gives us new insights, but it also tells us about Jesus. It testifies. It proclaims his name to us. Why? So we can do that to other people. So we could testify to other people. Again, we get to be the advocate. you got Jesus advocating to God the Father for your forgiveness. you got the Holy Spirit advocating for Jesus in you. And now you are to advocate to other people about him. I know it's kind of wacky, and it's crazy, so I thought long and hard, how can I explain this so we would get it, and this is a terrible explanation. It's kitschy, it's childish, it's silly, I'm admitting all that right now, but have you ever turned on push notifications on your phone? Yeah. That's the Holy Spirit in you. It's like turning on push notifications. I get up in the morning, I open up my laptop, and bloop, all these bubbles pop up on the right hand side of my screen. You got to go to work, you got to work out, you got to do your sermon, you got to pick up Sophie. It tells me everything I got to do that day, right? My phone, beep, it tells me, oh, look, I got to be somewhere. My phone's beeping. That's the Holy Spirit. Terrible analogy. It's stupid, it's childish, but it, we relate to it. The Holy Spirit is in you and it's constantly little pop ups Boop, remember Jesus, bloop, remember what he said, boop, love your neighbor, boop, love others, you know, bloop, forgive your kids, bloop, right? <laughs> go to marriage dynamics, boop, <laughs> go to EHD, boop. Invite that guy to church, boop. That's what the Holy Spirit's doing. And it's free of charge. You get it when you get baptized. It just pops in. It's malware. It's just built into the program. It's not bad. I can say malware. Jesus told stories, and he sometimes made God the bad guy in the story. It's okay. I'm not making God the bad guy. I'm just making a point. So as you pray you start advocating for the people in your life to know the forgiveness that you know, the Holy Spirit's gonna tell you, hey, you're forgiven too. You don't need to worry, you don't need to fret, you're forgiven. But hey, maybe you should go uh, spend time with the guy you're praying for. Maybe you should get some regular time with the people on your list and, and invest in them. Spend some time with them, build rapport, build a relationship. Don't just come at them and hit them with the Bible right off the bat, get to know them. I love our church. I love how warm and welcome, and people say that a lot. And I love the fact when people come into church, they get greeted. But you know, sometimes that can be a bit pushy, right? Maybe when you greet someone, get to know them first before you quiz all of your thing about their life and find out when they're free to get together and do a Bible study. Go have a cup of coffee. Go build some rapport. Or how about the coworker that doesn't come to church, or your classmate, or your colleague, or your cousin, or your child that isn't really going to church? Spend time with them. Maybe the Holy Spirit's prompting you to do that too. Right. Invest. And then invite. And then let the Holy Spirit make you into Jesus for them. Let the Holy Spirit turn you into their advocate. Because now you love them and you care for them. One of my favorite sayings is, you know, we, we like to think of ourselves as a church of, what, what are we, about 100 people? But each of us has a world of maybe 10 other key relationships that we invest in, we pray for, we invest in on a regular basis. So really we're a church of maybe 15, of maybe a 1,000, yeah, about maybe a 1,000, right? <laughs> 10 times, is that right? 10 times, maybe a 1,000. It's just 900, 900 don't know it yet. But you know, that's why I get up every morning. Because I love those 10. And it's why we get up every morning, because we love those 900. And maybe the Holy Spirit's prompting us to show them that love. Verse 40, with many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Peter ends and he pleads with the crowd to accept the message, his message of Jesus being Lord, the the God-man, the Lord Christ, and that is our message. And about 3,000 people in one day accepted that message, and were baptized. I think the point's obvious here that it's not just repentance, it's not just belief, it's repentance, baptism, and belief in Jesus' name that matters. It's why they took the time to baptize all 3,000 people. Because the whole thing matters. And that's what I think Peter Wanted them to wants us to know as well. Even though it was not fully fleshed out, it's what he wanted to know in Acts 2, it's what he wants us to know now. But as the Bible was written, some of these deeper concepts, some of these the, the backstory of some of these concepts were eventually fleshed out, and now we know them today. And so we too have the same message as Peter. And maybe one day we'll see thousands of people baptized. Who knows? What God can do. So, if you haven't noticed, this little mini-series has been based on our little belief statement that we say every Sunday. I've done sort of each sentence at a time and given some of the sort of scriptural foundation for it because I really want it to be ingrained in us as a church. So if you can, we're going to say the whole statement together. From the beginning, when we started several weeks ago, I'll go first and you can repeat after me. Are you ready? We believe the Bible is the best source of truth in our world today. In it, we learn that Jesus is Lord. He lived a sinless life, died on the cross, and rose to life again. And it is in this belief that we baptize repentant people in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. All right, I'll do it again. Hang on. Here we go. It is in this belief that we baptize repentant people in people. In in Jesus' name for the forgiveness of their sin And to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Next week, Josh Massey is going to come on up. He's one of our campus interns. He's going to come up and preach to us for Super Bowl Sunday. But the following week, I'm going to end the series with that last little caveat we tack on at the end. We're a member-supported church by people like me. You can give today. So we'll hold that for two weeks from now. Otherwise, I want you to stand on up. We're going to close out. I'm going to say a prayer, and you will be dismissed. And by the way, I really want to thank you for coming today. And, you know, if you're new here or if this is something you haven't been doing for a while, we're just glad you're here. Just thankful. And, and hey, if you enjoyed it, just keep coming back. We'd love to tell you more, but there's no rush. Just keep coming back. Get to know us, and we'd love to get to know you. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the power of your message in Acts 2, for the the whole backstory and all of it that we have been able to dig into this past few weeks. I pray that we leave here different, changed, focused, empowered, really, to go out and advocate for you and for the people around us. Thank you so much for Jesus who advocates for us and for the Holy Spirit who prompts us and guides us. We're so grateful We don't deserve it, but you've given it to us, and we praise you for that. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Enjoy your fellowship.
1: If you've been walking the same old road for miles and miles, if you've been hearing the same old voice, the same old lies, if you're trying to feel the same old holes inside, there's a better life There's a better life If you got pain He's a pain taker If you feel lost He's a way maker If you need freedom a savior, He's a prison shaking savior If you got chains He's a chain breaker We've all searched for the light, of day and the dead of night. We've all found ourselves worn out from the same old fight. We've all run to things we know just ain't right. And there's a better life. There's a better life. You got pain. He's a pain taker Oh